along with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Well, just in case you were lurking, waiting for Ron's dulcet tones to introduce the show, as indeed we all are, he's lurking in the chat room as we speak, so we expect him imminently to host tonight's episode of Ghost Chronicles, the missing host edition. With me from rainy West Wales, Steve Parsons, Ron laughingly calls the gold standard in ghost hunting, and, well, I was going to say, and in New England, New England's own Van Heflin, who's, I don't know where he is, but we'll struggle on until he arrives with our host tonight, uh, or no, with our guest tonight, I should say, um, a gentleman with whom I've had many a drunken night in Scotland. Uh, in the capital city of Edinburgh and where I shall be next week. So I hope to God Ron's here next week, because I won't be. Um, so, Gordon Rutter, the the man who knows everything for him. But first of all, let's, let's just explain, because um, what actually is Fortean and Fortiana? Let's get that un- out of the way, first of all. Yeah, sure. It's named after an American writer stroke academic called Charles Fort, who in essentially the night up until the 1930s when he died, was producing books. He wrote four in total. And those books were looking at the odd, the unusual, the unexplained, the things that he called the damned data. And by damned data, he means information, facts and figures and evidence that was that was ignored by mainstream science and he thought it was wrong to ignore these things so he started collecting them and uh, as i say produced them into four books and now we call study of these things fortians so fortians are people who who are interested in the ideas they don't necessarily believe in these things and they're looking at uh, all of the anomalous data, collecting them to see if there's any patterns, to see if there's any truth. Because if you don't look, you'll never know. That's the key thing. And if the data arrives, then, you know, people change their mind. That's the idea about being a fortune. It's not a it's not a fixed-minded, I believe in blah, 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 or I don't believe in blah, blah, blah. It's, a, it's an open-minded approach to the data. But looking at the quirkier side of data, that tends to get ignored to see if there is any truth or any validity in it. So I've got to ask, how did you get into such a, a such an area of interest? I wish I knew. I really wish I knew because it, it's, as far as I can remember, it's something that I've been interested in all my life. Um, as a kid, I, I went to the local library and devoured all of what I now know is the Fortean section of the library, but the Loch Ness Monster, UFOs, ghosts, all those types of books. And I absolutely read every single one of those that they had. And be- 
because they could see that I was interested in the subject, uh, they let me take books out from the from the adult section, which makes it sound really <laughs> dodgy, um, just as opposed to the junior section. As I didn't know you could leave kids. the library with plain brown wrappers. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what you mean, Steve. Uh, <laughs> but as, as they could see, I was interested in reading. They were quite happy to encourage me and, and quite happy to allow me to get out these other books and, you know, just continue my, my reading from there and consequently I've been reading about it all my life as far as I'm concerned um, I'm a big Doctor Who fan as well and there's a lot of fortune themes crop up in Doctor Who so inadvertently I've, I've soaked it up from there as well and you know as, as I got a bit older I started looking into these things more actively going out uh, to places and and collecting things books, magazines, ephemera etc etc so it's, it's, it's really been a lifelong passion um, and it's something that I've I've been interested in since before I can remember, but I can't actually specifically put my finger on one thing and say that was it. My parents watched these types of programmes when they came on the telly. I can remember before I was 10 visiting Scotland and being really excited about going past Loch Ness and all this sort of thing. So I knew about these things before I was age 10. But, uh, yeah... So, I I know that your passion for the strange and the weird goes even beyond just mere interest, because uh, I remember a night in an Edinburgh pub where you and I compared collections of weird and strange objects that we both had. But before we come on to that, um, and the burning question, literally, of who burnt down Alistair Crowley's house, um, some breaking news. Apparently, um, through the wonders of... Uh, Bell Technology, we have uh, our our host. Don't we? <laughs> Yay! <laughs> At last! <laughs> Where have you been? Yeah, I'm on a cell phone. Um, the, uh, yeah, so I'm back anyways, whatever. Uh, yeah, I was listening all, it's all very good, so that's cool. Just carry on. All right, <laughs> So, well, who, I wonder who, who actually invented the cell phone, because I said Bell Technology, Alexander, um, I think Bell is, is the landline. Anyway, so, Gordon, um, as, as I alluded to uh, before, um, we, we got the good news, the breaking news that our actual host is on the line. Um, you have taken this this interest in Fortiana to to excess um, and have <laughs> <laughs> and, and have amassed quite a collection of uh, the weird and the strange. Now I know it's an extensive collection, um, and we don't want to spend all night talking about it. But would you like to pick your let's say top two items? Um, your Three if you had. To, Top three items. If you had to leave a burning building, which items would you save and why? Ow. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're talking about my children here. Um, I, I think one thing I would definitely save would be I have uh, a representation of the Vale of Veronica. 
The Veil of Veronica is uh, a piece of cloth that was supposedly used to wipe Christ's brow when he was on the way to get crucified. And in the way of, of these things, as it were, um, his image was actually impressed onto the cloth. And over time... This this piece of cloth was saved, and it was it was venerated as a as a, a relic of the passion. And there are several claimants to be the uh, the actual shroud. Uh, sorry, veil of Veronica. And one of the veils is in the Vatican, and it used to be on on display. Uh, I think it was something like once a year they would hold it up from inside a. Uh, a, a hollow pillar and would hold it out so that the, the faithful could see it and I've got a painting of that cloth and it, the painting itself is on cloth and because this was a a, a relic of the passion and there are no physical relics of, of Jesus Christ in existence this was venerated as a first class relic so the equivalent of, of a, a piece of a saint and if you touch an item to a first class relic or indeed a second class relic um, that item itself becomes a third class relic and as such is is worthy of veneration by the faithful and my copy of the veil of veronica was touched to the veil in the vatican now to be worthy of full veneration it has to have the signature of two uh, cardinals to say that it's the real deal and on the back of mine is actually pasted a piece of paper which is a, 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 a letter in Latin explaining what it is and unfortunately my letter only has the signature of one cardinal on it because the other signature is a pope which obviously trumps any cardinals so that's one thing I would definitely save um, this veil of Veronica signed by by Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Um, so that's one thing. But what else would I say? I can I just why you have a think? Can I, can I ask a question here? Because I have got uh, two papal blessings, both signed by um, popes. One by Benedict, who's still very much in the world of the living, but one is signed by John Paul. John Paul II, I should say. Now, because it's been signed and handled by a pope who is on his way, if he isn't already a saint, does that mean that the certificate of papal blessing is now a first-class relic? No. Um, a first-class okay. relic... <laughs> a first-class relic right. in, uh, in right. the normal sense is... Um, a piece of the pulp. So if you told me you had John Paul II's finger... Got his DNA. That would be... Uh, but a second-class relic is something that was used in, in the life, in the workings of that person. So I guess a, right. a letter signed by JP2 would indeed be a second-class relic. But, as I say, I think before you start forming your own religion and inviting people <laughs> to create your house, Don't. I think you are falling down on the... Um, 
on the fact that the relic itself has to have, if you like, a certificate of authenticity signed by two cardinals or above. So... Ah. Well, my, you, well, actually, my paper can't count the signed. relic itself as proof that yeah. it exists. That's having your cake and eating it. Yeah, but the papal blessing is countersigned. Mm-hmm. I by, actually, uh, I pardon. have a first-class relic myself, which which is the blood of Saint Chevelle. Ooh, that's cool. Do Do you have the uh, relevant documentation? And the answer to that would be no, because. The blood of St. Chabelle is, um, it's granular. It's like sand. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I was on some, uh, on an exorcism uh, with a Franciscan, and he had the, the, the blood, which is what they do is they take the blood, a grain or so, and put it in holy water to make it uh palatable, not palatable, but uh, usable, and uh, in an exorcism, and uh, so I have that. So it's not, it's still the blood, but it's, it's uh, I guess, diluted, if you would say, but uh, that's what I have anyway. For I mean, that, better that would still... That would still potentially, with the relevant documentation, be a first-class relic, because some of the... Right, I'm, I'm relics... sure, I'm sure, I'm sure the Franciscan has the, the, the proper, to, you know, uh, documentation on on your, yeah. the amount that he yeah. has. I mean, so, so a, grain, so a tiny grain of sand that that is What's supposedly. That? So I'm just trying to clarify here. The fact that I've got a, a a piece a certificate on vellum signed by a pope who has now been created yeah. a sect, countersigned by at least one cardinal. In fact, it, in fact, bizarrely, yeah. it's countersigned by. Um, Benedict, uh, when he was Rat Cardinal yeah. Ratzinger, so there's a weird one. It's got two papal signatures on it. That's that's outdone by a grain of sand. Anyway, technicality, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> because it actually it actually was part of the saint versus uh, a ink that never was part of the Pope. No offense. Well, I'm sure the Pope's DNA is all over the certificate. On the ink, right? He sucked the end of the pen? I don't no, think he, so. He must have touched the thing to steady it when he wrote all over it. And he did write all over it because that was witnessed. You know, it's not one of these, like, stampy oh. signy things. He did actually sign it himself. Anyway, Gordon, what's your second so, choice? So you should, probably, you should probably have it dusted for fingerprints, then. Yeah, I might do. Uh, anyway, we still need... We still there got you go. two more choices. You can see how many popes are, are on it. Yeah, well, there's two on it for sure, but uh, we want Gordon's second choice because this place is still on fire. Um, I guess I have a one-eyed pig. I should rescue him. Uh, he's not alive, so oh, don't worry about thing. that. Um, they're, they're always born, stillborn, or die within a few hours, so um, so there's no way he was ever going to make it. Um, that one was quite mm-hmm. cool, because somebody from Canada got in touch with me and said, hey, I've got this one-eyed pig, do you want it? I said, hell yeah. Um, so, one-eyed <laughs> pig. Um, what else? Number three. I could go for a first edition of one of Charles Fort's books. Uh, so I'll say that simply because I can't choose. Oh, uh, I've got a first edition of, of one of the, you know, the closest we've got to a Bible, if you want to go that, down that route. 
Well, do you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to, um, if you don't mind, Gordon, I'm going to throw those same questions to Ron um, because I'm in charge tonight, strangely. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to say to Ron, <clears throat> um, because we are going to be talking burning buildings a little later on in the show um, because, um, well, I'll explain later. But nonetheless, Ron, three items uh, from your collection. And I know you have a collection too. So, uh, the fire brigade are on the way. Yeah, it, my, my problem is my collection is scattered, so it's 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 more difficult. Uh, it's very seldom in the same building. Um, well, just imagine it is. Said, <laughs> let's let's imagine it was in the same building. Yeah. Uh, play, I mean, I would. I, I mean, the first thing I would definitely take out of here would be the uh, the jawbone I have, of course. Mm-hmm. That is definitely uh, my number one item I would take. Just saying. That's reassuring to hear. That's reassuring to hear. What about numbers two and three? Oh, that becomes a little bit more difficult after that. Um, uh, the 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 Bible from the. Uh, haunted funeral home with the picture of the, the woman who uh, was buried there, but her items were not interned with her. Uh, I would grab that. That's number two, I would think. I, have so many, I don't know which one. Um, I don't know. I guess I don't know. So many. Uh, Don, I have... I have to do that now. I have another one, but I have to update it because now I have to take out Harry Price's glasses. <laughs> Price features highly to so that, that because, because in my three choices that, also. Well, I was going to say price price features highly in yours yours and my own selection because my three choices would be Price's own hand annotated edition of his book on Borley Rectory, the most haunted house in England. Um, I I guess I don't know about numbers two and three though. Probably my nineteenth uh, century Catholic exorcists kit would have to go out the door with me too, oh, cool. um, because that's just too cool. Um, and do you know what? I'm going to throw a real curveball in here and say, uh, say my bass guitar, <laughs> oh, <laughs> just because I, I can. I thought you were going to take my personal signed copy of Ghost Chronicles to you. So, okay. Uh, no, along, along with uh, Ghostology and Paracoustics, it can burn. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that, that, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, I got a lot of different items. I, I particularly like those uh, three items. And, and oddly enough, I mean... The, the things that you gave me are, are really near and dear to me. Uh, in addition to the the glasses and the jawbone, of course, is the uh, the uh, the piece of Auschwitz's uh, uh, I have, and also um, the uh, coins that were teleported. Those are all things that mean a lot to me. So um, those I, I definitely mean a lot. But I have other items as well that, that I have as well. But those. Those mean actually quite a bit to me. Do you think it's actually, Gordon um, and Ron, both actually, um, 
do you think this is a particularly male thing to collect stuff? You know, I mean, you know, we have oh, this... my mother collected shit for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we get obsessive about our collections. Trust me, we? trust me. She died. She died at ninety nine, and my brother moved to Florida and lived in their house. And now I've got all her stuff in my <laughs> porch, so I know how much stuff there is. So I would I, say no. It's not a male thing. But do you know? I I, I always believe. I'd argue it was. How, how, yeah. I, I'm how many female? Stamp collectors or train spotters, do you know? Exactly. There are, well, there are there are always coin you know there are always coin exceptions. But you know, people collect I, everything, and people people collect Barbie dolls. People collect Ouija boards. People collect tons and tons of stuff, and they're not all male. There are just as many female, I believe. But uh, even in the oddities. Even in the oddity stuff, there are many uh, females that collect uh, odd items. Um, so, it, it, you know, I, I, I kind of think that it's sexist, but that's all right. That's just me. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go with Gordon on this one because I think there is there is a predominance of uh, collectors who have who rate on the autism spectrum um, between sort of total as you know from one end Asperger's up to full autism, and I think this obsessive compulsive uh, trait is. Uh, from my medical understanding of it, is predominantly a male thing. And men do get obsessive about, you know, their collections. They collect lawnmowers and fire extinguishers and frogs and one-eyed pigs and all manner of strange and bizarre things. I'm, you know, looking around the office where I am now and looking at my own collection of the weird and bizarre rubbish that I've accumulated. And I, I, yeah, I know women collect stuff as well, but those tend to be kittens. And no, I, I know. I, my mother collected like... angels. I, I know another woman that collects dolls. Uh, and there's just as many. They just collect different things than this. That's all. <laughs> we have a, from the chat room, we have Kirsten, who's saying she's collecting yellow dog hair to make Donald Trump toupees for everyone. <laughs> 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 but I already I mean, have one. What, a toupee? Yeah, Donald Trump TV. Actually, uh, I, I turned down an invitation. I was invited to a cocktail party for Donald Trump last night, but uh, he was involved, and uh, I just cast it up. Well, that's probably not a bad thing. We're, uh, we're, we're, I don't want to get to burning houses before the before the uh, word from our sponsors, which is a few minutes away. But uh, I'm going to go back. Can we, to... Yeah, we get to uh, we can, we can go to the uh, Crowley thing after the break. Well, that's what I just said. I don't want to get to burning houses before the break. Um, but I do want to go back no, to forty. I you do want to get back. Cell phone, so I don't. I don't hear real well. Yeah, I've seen your. I've seen your cell phone. That's a collectible item as well. It's certainly an antique. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to go. I'm, you know, I that's wanna... another thing I'm collecting. <laughs> I want to go back to this Fortiana again um, because Charles Fort had a had a very wide sort of remit, didn't he, Gordon? In in terms of what he was interested in, you know, we, we talk about uh, you know, some of the the very strange things that that. Our realities, this idea of, of fish, frogs uh, falling from the sky. I mean, that that comes in the, under Fortiana and something that would Ooh, of cool interest one. to Charles Ford. 
Definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, several of his books are, are full of stories of, of strange um, fish falls and things like that and, and falls of frogs. For those who don't know them, basically a typical story would be something like a, a clear day, somebody feels something land on their head, they look up and suddenly see a column of, of dots falling towards them and when they look on the ground to see what these things are they may be fish they may be frogs or something like that when they look closer they're fish all of the same type or they're frogs all of the same type and they're all of the similar sort of size or so similar sort of age as well and um you know when you look around there's there's nothing anywhere there's localized in a very small area um there's no generally no rain of a normal sort or anything like that so he collected data like that because people continue to report these and you can't just say, say you know people are making these stories up so what's the reality of that and there are all sorts of uh, explanations that are put forward for these things but typically the the normal explanation for these is by somebody who's just being told it as we're talking about it now and they just have to think on their feet and say oh it's obviously um, um, a, torna a mini tornado going over a pond and sucking up all of the fish and all the things and just depositing them and this is totally ignoring the fact that nobody reported a tornado at the time they're totally ignoring the fact that um, it's only one species that's being rained down they're totally ignoring the fact that these that whatever the species is they're all of the same size the same age so whatever this this uh, mystical tornado is doing is it's it's totally sorting out all of the all of the things that it's sucking up and it's becoming invisible and if you think oh well perhaps these things just happened in the 1930s where you know where people perhaps weren't as clever as we are now where um communication wasn't as good as it is now and so on and so on that's totally untrue um i i, I know 1974 a uh, oh, lot more recent than that Carapupa, brazil lot more recent than that um bob ricard who founded a magazine called 14 times which which looks at this on a monthly basis and it's still going strong uh bob he didn't witness the fall himself, but it literally happened about half a mile from where he lives in East London, and that was in the 1990s. And he was able to collect some of the fish that fell. And, you know, he would go on top of the, the roofs of garages and things, and these things would be there. And he, he collected them, took them to the Natural History Museum, got the species identified and everything. But, you know, still happening. Still no explanation. That's one of the, the great anomalies. I mean, I know people put forward, uh, you, you talk about this idea of tornadoes, um, but we also, uh, Gaia has, has been put forward on a number of occasions, this sort of great rebalancing of the universe. Uh, you know, you fill a, fill a pond um, or, or a swimming pool with water, and fish appear in it. Um, but the ad break is about to appear in about 20 seconds' time. So uh, we hang fire, literally, because when we come back after the word from our sponsors, which no doubt will mention tea in some form, um, we'll be talking about 19, burning bill. Uh, 1965, uh, pigeons and birds fell in uh, England at uh, Shakespeare's Castle. Well, they tend to. It happens over here. <laughs> you haven't seen our pigeons. Right, um, tunes are coming up, so we'll talk to you after the break. 
in Denmark, excuse me. Monday mornings just got scarier. Tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be with remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased. We'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place an oasis in this hectic world. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly gooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange, deranged. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parrax family. Greetings and felicitations. I am Ron Collette, New England's own Van Helsing. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the Blonde Bombshell. And we're here at the elegant Benford Hall, the Downton Abbey of Venice. And we would like to extend a formal invitation to you. Tune in every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. On TokiNet, ParaX, Ghost Channel, and Planet Paranormal. You can even listen live on your smartphone with your TuneIn app or catch the podcast on iTunes. And now, time for tea. Didn't I say before the outbreak it would mention tea in some form? But we're back for part two of Ghost Chronicles International. Sans host, who's calling us via Bell Technology, I guess. He's on a cell phone, but Ron's is a very old cell phone. So I guess Alexander Graham Bell might have had a hand in it. Um, And our guest tonight is 14 expert and, uh, in fact, all round 
paranormal expert, but also a photography expert. Um, Gordon Rutter, who's speaking to us tonight from the capital of Bonnie, Scotland, who is still recovering from the Hogmanay New Year celebrations, which go on well into February, um, if my memory serves me correctly. <laughs> um, and I was just thinking, while, while the, uh, the ad break was on, uh, we've just had over the Christmas break here in the UK the final ever episode of Downton Abbey. Um, and I'm just wondering whether that will change the ad break in future because once Downton finishes, they're going to have to do, come up with a new ad break um, because it won't be relevant any longer. Hey, hope that be ever relevant. Well, it is to Americans. They think it's, they think that's how we live. They, they think we all sit around in the drawing room whipping the servants and drinking tea all day. Good God, Steve. I, I, I can hey. never survive with that few servants. I need at least twice that many. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, one butler for Un, heaven's unreal, sake. Unreal. Unreal. Yeah. One butler. How would we manage? <laughs> anyway, I... We've alluded several times throughout the show to uh, burning buildings and a very, very uh, important property that was damaged uh, probably uh, irretrievably by fire over the uh, Christmas holiday period. Uh, The house uh, is up on the shores of Loch Ness um, and was known as Boleskine House, a place where I visited on several occasions, although never had the good fortune to step inside the property. Um, but it belonged to someone who was once described as the most evil man in the world, uh, and he also played for Led Zeppelin. If, if you, uh... Oh, you stole my joke. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm also psychic. So, Gordon, what, what actually happened? Um, it was December the 23rd, last year, as we must now say, and something news was breaking everywhere that Bleskin House was on sale, uh, on sale, sorry, was on fire. Um, Bleskin House is on the shores of Loch Ness, looks out, would have a nice view of the monster if it ever popped up, and as Steve's just said, it was is at one point owned by Alistair Crowley, the self-styled most wickedest man in the world. And in, currently, it's actually been owned as a um, as a holiday home by a Dutch family, I believe. And they were actually staying there on the twenty third, and they they popped out to do a bit of shopping. Now, for you or I, that would probably be just a two or three minute job, just straight out the door to the corner shop or something. But uh, when you live in Bleskin House, the nearest the nearest shops are, you know, a good few minutes walk away. If you're going to walk it, you're, you're stupid, quite frankly. You're better off driving. <laughs> um, so they were they were out for a reasonable length of time, some, you know, half an hour, an hour also. We caught <laughs> and by the time they got back, the, the house was aflame. And it wasn't just, you know, a little spurt of flame. It was flames pouring out of the roof kind of thing. And obviously they called the fire brigade. And by the time it was all finished, uh, approximately 60% of the main house itself was destroyed. And they believe uh, that the... Uh, the fire actually started in the kitchen. So I guess 
one possibility is one mundane possibility I should say is that they started cooking realised they were short of an ingredient popped out to get it, left the cooker on and unfortunately when they came back that it started a fire which by that time was essentially unstoppable I mean the good news is nobody was harmed so, so there's no loss of life there so it could have been a lot worse from that point of view but 60% of it is destroyed. The whole building is Category B listed. So even if you take away the the connections with Alistair Crowley and Jimmy Page, it's still a, a historically important building, which has now been, been gone. Um, it's too early to say what's going to happen to it at the moment. As, as Steve's alluded there, it may well be that it's it's just too expensive to do anything, and that may be the end of it. The stables and the gate lodge are still in existence, so I guess it could be possible to convert those into some form of dwelling. But if you've been there a few times, you, you've been unlucky, Steve, because at various times it has been used as a guest house. Um, it, prior to 2009, it was a guest house. It's 2009, it was actually put back up on the market for about 176,000 pounds, and that's when the current low owners, price, isn't it? But that's that what is, everyone says. Yeah, yeah everyone I mean, says. And you know, you know for, for, I, for the history of that property, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to uh, sort of force you to backtrack a little bit here because um, I I can't imagine that anybody here uh, or listening to the podcast wouldn't know who Alistair Crowley is but on that on that odd bizarre possibly even possibly even 14 assumption um, can you just just enlighten us who 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 was this this man Alistair Crowley well, um, according to the Daily Express, when they were reporting the fire at Boleskine House, Alistair Crawley was a member of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're going to get your headline wrong, get it wrong. Big style, definitely. That's monumental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alistair Crawley was a, a, a self-styled black magician, um, and he, he had a lot of followers. He had a lot of acolytes. He, he was basically just, uh, I guess, a major hedonist. He was in life for all of the pleasures of every form and every type that he could take. And he used his position of... Uh, of head of various magic-related organs uh, to, to take those pleasures, ranging from orgies through to drugs, through to just the pleasure he seemed to get from from controlling other people and getting them to do sort of heinous things that they wouldn't necessarily do. So he actually bought Boleskine House because he wanted it to use in a, a black magic ritual. So he bought it and he started the ritual and it was one of these incredibly convoluted um, rituals and he didn't actually quite finish it um, and eventually moved out of the house in 1913 stayed in Scotland uh, lived in Falkirk um, but he didn't finish this this ritual so some people claim that he actually left a, a portal for demons open um, Jimmy Page obviously um, 
was was the genuine member of Led Zeppelin, and he was interested in in Crowley and Black Magic and all that sort of thing, and he actually collected Crowley memorabilia, and one of the obvious ultimate items to own was was Boleskine House. So sure enough, in 1970, uh, Jimmy Page bought it. At that time it had been allowed to go into sort of rack and ruin, but he did feel it had a good uh, good atmosphere and everything, and he liked it and he thought it was great. So he threw a pile of money at it and, and basically got it um, got it restored. So he's, he's definitely responsible for it not falling into total rack and ruin in the 1970s. Ultimately, he probably only spent a couple of weeks there over the entire time of his ownership, and it wasn't until 1990 that he sold it um, and he had a caretaker who, who looked after it for him so you know any people thinking they want to buy it uh, because of the Jimmy Page connection you know it's he's probably got underpants that he's spent more time with than he ever spent in uh, in Boleskine House and as I say from 1992 up until 2009 it kind of alternated between being a, a private residence and a guest house. It's a couple of acres uh, so it's a decent sized site. It's set back a little bit from the road so you, you can glimpse the top of it when you're on the road and um, it is gated so it's quite difficult to get into and the the owners and their um, their caretakers are not overly keen on on people turning up and say, "Oh, can I have a look at Elsa Crowley's house?" or "Oh, can I have a look at Jimmy Page's house?" But from past experience, if you go walking in the area, and it's quite a walk from the um, from the the road or anything, so you are off the beaten track for for a couple of hours. But it is possible that you can walk right past the back of the house. So if you're willing to put that couple of hours walking, you get an absolutely fantastic view of mm. of the house, which you know otherwise you wouldn't say- get. Yeah, I've got to say from from my own personal uh, recollections of being up at uh, the side of Loch Ness, and I was there um, several times for for monster hunting trips, Um, but right directly in front of Boleskine House is a very old churchyard uh, that that I remember very, very well. Firstly, as being um, an excellent viewpoint and vantage point uh, over a good portion of uh, the loch, and allowing you know uh, wannabe monster hunters like myself uh, somewhere to uh, park up and to set up cameras, but also interestingly and doubly interesting for 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 me was that the churchyard has got a phenomenal history of ghosts and hauntings associated with it, uh, completely yeah. separately from the house. Ah, no, not separate from the house, because it's all demons that leaked out from the portal that, oh, was uh, it? that Crowley opened. Oh, yeah, of course it was. was. There was a white lady that was supposed to... No, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of ghost stories. Yeah, I was going to say that dates back to the 18th century. Yeah. That's um, yeah. pre, pre-Crowley. That explains yeah, it. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> there's... Um, there's a little sort of storage room at the at the very bottom of the um, of the graveyard, quite close to the lock itself. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time I went there, you could get in, and you know it was two floors, 
and uh, when you went in it was painted with all the sort of mystical symbols that people associate with Crowley and so on and so on so you thought okay it's obvious what people are coming here for and you know there's a few empty alcohol bottles and things like that but it's Scotland it... <laughs> oh no that would be Buckfast <laughs> so you know I don't think it was just the Scots who were visiting it but you know you could see people were coming in apart from the painting on the you know the door on the walls and things like that there didn't seem to be much damage and then more recent visits when I've gone back that's all boarded up now and you think oh, that's a shame because you, you know in the past you could go in whereas now it's just another one of these boarded up places where you know nobody goes in you can't it's just going to be left to rack and ruin and not get used for anything at all sure it's better to have people go in there and, and try and commune with the area rather than just have it there's a building that's rotting. Wow. You've given us a nice segue there into cemeteries uh, and then back to Edinburgh because Edinburgh has a very famous cemetery. Um, Great Friars. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, we are on a paranormal radio show, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick with Greyfriars. Um, and, of course, the Covenanters prison is within the Greyfriars churchyard. Um, the churchyard made famous, of course, by the Disney film uh, and the story of Greyfriars Bobby. Um, but before we, before we talk a, bit, a little bit about the graveyard, I, th I think one of my abiding memories of Greyfriars is actually not so much the Covenanters prison and the Mackenzie poltergeist, which we'll, we, may be, we may get time to touch on, but with some of the strange names on the gravestones. One, one in particular, a gentleman whose Christian name was, was uh, Wardrobe. <laughs> You um, <laughs> Scot, those Scots saying you had to have a good time back in the 18th century, didn't they? I'll name that, my son Wardrobe. That churchyard is responsible for quite a lot of um, yeah. our names because there, there are two great literary figures that that everyone listening tonight, uh, sorry, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, wherever you're listening, I don't know, um, that people Hopefully will be listening. aware of. Well, there's, a, there's at least six people in the chat room, so they're presumably listening. Um, nice. Three of them are us. <laughs> valid point, yes. Um, but J.K. Rowling used to go and walk in that... Uh, in that she buried there already? Uh, I hope not, because she's not dead. <laughs> that would be a bit of a problem for her. Uh, but while she was writing the first Harry Potter book, she would walk in that uh, in that very churchyard. And one of the mausoleums in there is to the Riddle family, which, of course, is he who should not be named's real name. So she got the name Riddle and probably some of the other names for characters as well from the graveyard. Uh, if you want to go back a little further in time... Um, there was Charles Dickens. He was having a, a walk through the graveyard at one point as well, and he noticed a, a stone, and he thought, that's a strange thing to write on it. And the, the name was Ebenezer Scroggins, uh, a miser. 
is what it said. And he thought, you know, if you're going to go to the trouble of putting up a gravestone for somebody, <laughs> are you going to really <laughs> consign them to history by calling them a miser? And he bent down, he, he peeled away the uh, the grass, and what it actually said was Ebenezer Scroggins, a meal man, and it was just the way the lichens and what have you had grown over. And a meal man was basically uh, related to the baking trade, so he was in flour. And he just thought, oh, that's, that's okay, that's strange. And it obviously started lots of little uh, cogs clicking away in his head because eventually when he went back home to London, he uh, he came up with not Ebenezer Scroggins, a, a mealman, but Ebenezer Scrooge, a miser. So, and, you know, Scrooge and, and Lord Voldemort yeah. both have their birth in, in Greyfriars Kirkyard. And without without Dickens, of course, we would never have had a Muppet's Christmas Carol. But the most famous, I, I guess, for the for the the American listeners, is got to be Greyfriars Bobby, the little dog, who actually isn't there, is he? That <laughs> he's not actually, I know, but he's not there, is he? <laughs> he's he's actually buried. Technically outside the graveyard, because at the time you couldn't bury um, uh, pets in in a cemetery. Um, So as you go in, there's what looks like a tombstone for Greyfriars Bobby, and there's all these little tributes left to him and all this sort of thing, mostly encouraged by the travel guides, I must say. And, you know, people just assume that's where he's buried, or if they think perhaps not there, then presumably buried with his master. Nope, he's buried outside the bounds of the of the churchyard. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of a couple of feet we're talking, but he's not in the, in the consecrated ground. Uh, there is something to. just next not to it. King novel. novel. Sorry? He's not coming say, back. Oh, that's right. No, he didn't inspire the Stephen pet King cemetery, pet cemetery. Pet cemetery. No, he's, he's not coming back to kill us all. No, <laughs> uh, just outside the the churchyard, I'm sure you can remember, Steve. There's a there's a statue of Greyfriars Bobby, and everyone right. gets the photograph taken with it, which is yep. fair enough. But there is a, a, a rather nasty thing that started recently, and again, I'm going to blame it on some of the tour guides. They're, they're telling all these tours that um, it's a well-known superstition that if you rub the nose of, of the Greyfriars Bobby statue, you'll, you'll be lucky. So they encourage everyone to rub the nose and all this sort of thing. Uh, well, no, no, they made it up. Nobody ever did this prior to a couple of years ago. And it was just so. Something one of them made up and others have perpetuated. And the problem is, it's now actually wearing away the nose on the statue. And the paint that's on the statue mm. has to be replaced constantly to, to, to stop the statue becoming damaged. York suffers a similar fate, doesn't it? We can't scare the statue of the em- Roman Emperor Constantine because it's become fashionable to rub his toe for good yeah. fortune. Um, or more recently, of course, because because of the way the statue, the bronze, is modelled in York of the Emperor Constantine, uh, it's the classic smoker's pose, and he's forever finding they're forever finding him with a cigarette uh, perched between his fingers. Or, or more recently, an electronic cigarette, uh, because oh. it's the 21st century. There's a nice picture of Constantine I took uh, fairly recently with it, with an e-cigarette propped between his fingers. But back to Greyfriars in Edinburgh, uh, because uh, within the churchyard is a smaller enclosure right at the back, which is... Uh, 
infamous, I would say, um, and made world made world headlines um, about ten or fifteen years ago for its poltergeist, the Mackenzie poltergeist. Uh, the location was, of course, is the Covenanters' prison, a place where I've had the good fortune or misfortune or the good misfortune to spend several nights. Yeah, in. I think. I think we've, we've, we've both done that, and uh, I don't know about you, but I've never experienced anything there, I must admit. Have Cold, you? boredom. <laughs> but the interesting, <laughs> the interesting discovery was um, was that the, what the, the t- tomb, uh, the, the Covenantist prison um, is actually a, a smaller uh, area enclosed by an iron gate um, within the Covenant, uh, within the, the open. Great Grief Rose Churchyard, Kirkyard, um, which was used to enclose Covenanters who were uh, religious rebels in the 18th century. Oh, the 18th century. Um, yep. And where many of them uh, either died awaiting uh, transportation um, or further, further punishment, um, but has a reputation for being the, the one of the side tombs, one of these uh, tombs with, uh, that, that line either side of the Covenanters' prison, as it's now been called, uh, um, has a reputation for a poltergeist. And nightly, uh, many, many uh, members of the public would, would be taken by the ghost tours um, into uh, the Covenanters' prison and into the tomb of the Mackenzie poltergeist. But in actual fact, they were always being taken into the wrong tomb. Uh, I don't know if you were aware of that, Gordon. Um, it was down to health and safety reasons because in the in the proper Mackenzie tomb, the floor was considered to be too unstable and too uneven. For, uh, uh, and after a number of people had fallen and tripped, they relocated the tours and the Mackenzie poltergeist uh, a few tombs down on the left. Well, the the, the proper bloody Mackenzie, to give him his, his uh, full name, um, he's buried outside of right. the of the Covenanters' prison, and it's because the floor was so rotten that some people believe the whole haunting poltergeist phenomena started a few years back. Uh, it was a, a typical Scottish summer night, so that means incredibly dark, very wet, <laughs> wind howling, you know, the, the sort of thing. And there was a local tramp who wanted to get out of the rain. And at the back of Mackenzie's tomb, there is actually a, a small opening. But the front has, has metal gates, so you can't get in there. But at the back, there's a small opening. And this, this tramp was able to, to crawl through that, and he got in. And as he was sort of wandering around, suddenly the, the floor gave way below him, because it was, it, it was rotten floorboards. And what happened was he fell. And he, he just fell straight down in a, in a gap. And then when he came to land, he wasn't quite sure what he was on. And, you know, he took, took pause for a few moments, boxed him out, just lit one, <laughs> suddenly found that he was, he was sitting or lying on top of this big pile of bones. The, they'd been using the bottom of Mackenzie's tomb as an ossuary. So uh, as they were digging new graves, if they found bones, rather than just leave them there, they would put them in this one area. And that's where they were all stacked. So this guy got out as quickly as possible, as you can imagine. And, you know, some people think that it's a disturbance of that tomb from that night that started all of the poltergeist activity. Um, a few years later, there was another disturbance. Um, 
somebody actually broke into the tomb quite deliberately and they went down into this ossuary area and inside that ossuary area you've actually still got a um, you've got a coffin and within that is is Mackenzie's uh, dead body and they took out the skull and played football with this as well so you know not a nice thing to do I guess that would probably have pushed things up to a higher level I was going to say, the, the, if you ever re- need a reason for a poltergeist manifestation, playing football with somebody's head, I guess he's going to hack them off a fair degree. But um, we've got the pizza bell about to go ding in my ear. If it hasn't, oh, there you go, it's just gone ding as I spoke. How about that for timing? Um, precognitive ding. <laughs> now... <sighs> Get a week tonight, um, yeah, a, a week tonight, uh, the Edinburgh 14 Society, of which you are a leading light, will be hosting a talk. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not a very good one. I wouldn't recommend people come to I, it. Yeah, I wouldn't like bother. Uh, no, no, I wouldn't bother. Um, no, really looking forward to it. It is your good self, and it's at really? 7.30pm. <laughs> yeah, so get yourself up here, quick. Oh, yeah. Um, it's at 7.30pm downstairs in the Jekyll and Hyde pub in the Making Crypt a note of that, because I didn't know the location. <laughs> on Hanover Street. It cool. starts then, so you'd better be there earlier, Steve. <laughs> so I, I've now, now, now I know where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, I'm looking forward to that. Ron, what are, you, what, are, what are your plans for the week coming up? Apart from finding uh, a better cell Red phone connection. And, uh, Red Light Sands tonight. Red Light Sands tonight at uh, VZ, where I am now, and... Uh, Sunday I'll be making pierogies. Making what? Making pierogies. Well, that sounds 14. <laughs> yeah, pierogies. Actually, yeah, uh, stuffed, stuffed, oh. uh, things, they're pretty good. Uh, my mother's okay. recipe, so there you go. Cool. Well, uh, hopefully during the red light seance, they'll, they'll have, be able to establish better communications than we were with the host tonight. <laughs> Um, and it really only falls to me to say, Gordon, how can people get hold of the 14 Society and find out more details? Website? Do a web search for Edinburgh 14 Society. That brings up all the details. Edinburgh14society.org.uk, uh, Facebook page. And if you want to come and see us next week, a week tonight, I won't be here. Hopefully, uh, Ron will be here. So it's good night from Maybe. me, and it's good night from Ron. And our special guest tonight. Yeah, and, and Gordon, Gordon, if you ever want to address my paranormal study group via Skype, I'd love to have you. More than happy to talk to anyone. <laughs> For, okay, a fee. For a fee. For a fee. Good night. <laughs> God bless. Good, good night. God bless. Cheers. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good law. Have you heard?